Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Peter Fricci. Peter is an American historian, writer, and professor of history at the University of Illinois. He is also an accomplished author of several best-selling books, including Hitler's First Hundred Days, When Germans Embrace the Third Reich. For today's conversation, I'm lucky enough to be joined again by my father, Ross Waxman, as my guest co-host. So Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. I remember you once saying you had a set of grandparents. One was on the right side of history. The other was on the (laughs) wrong side of history. Do you mind explaining what you mean by that? And how did that play a role in your career choice? Well, um, my, 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 my parents uh, met on the boat uh, going to the United States. Uh, in 1952. They were the first batch of Fulbright students from Germany to the United States. And uh, they both came from very um, politically different backgrounds. So my mother came from a family in Berlin where um, her father was a, uh, was a, was a um, economist and a lawyer. And those are very practical sort of rational professions. And over the course of the Weimar Republic, he moved from right to left and ended up being a, a, a social democrat, a socialist. And he worked for the government, uh, for the Prussian finance ministry. And in fact, he was in charge of the um, investigation of the misuse of uh, agricultural subsidies that were supposed to go to small farmers, but of course went to the uh, landed nobility and caused a great big scandal. So he was one of the professionals working through that uh, investigation. Um, and uh, yeah, and so he was always, uh, always a man of the left uh, till the day he died. He was a moderate social Democrat. Um, my father's family, well, I found a letter from my father's father uh, in the archives. So he was officially a member of a center right group. And, um, uh, but by the time the 1933 rolls around uh, with Hitler's appointment, this is a minuscule party. And he had been uh, advocating for a grand coalition of the uh, bourgeois parties with the Nazis, uh, as many people in his uh, situation in his class. He was the director of a mining academy uh, in Aachen, Germany. And so I, I would imagine that they uh, felt r- relatively comfortable with the new regime because it was non-socialist, it was patriotic. And that was, that was a very important thing for um, Protestant Germans uh, of, from the middle classes. And they were conservative in other ways. And so he, he, he remained the mining director and um, had gone all around the world before. 1933 and would do so again after 1945. And, um, and I think he, 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 they were quite happy uh, in the Third Reich as, as many Germans were. Whereas, whereas my pa- mother's parents were not happy at all. And, very, and my 
grandfather then you know, went into private practice. My mother's father went into private practice. And he, he defended even some people uh, who had uh, gotten ensnared uh, in the Third Reich. Um, when my parents got married in 1952, my father's parents didn't come. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, my, my, uh, my mom was, well, first of all, from this very cosmopolitan Berlin. Uh, well, they moved from Berlin at that point, but uh, she had fingernail polish, right? And those, those, those were all bad signs. Um, now, over the course of, uh, of uh, through 1980, when, when the principal people died, um, you know, we did, we visited them and got along. I, I liked my grandmother, my father's mother a lot. His father died very early, so he's out of the picture. Um, but now, you know, professionally, I understand that they were in very, very different camps. Um, but that's something I, I figured out after I'd made my basic decisions to, to study history. But I always more identified with my, uh, with my mother's parents and spent a long, long, long time with them uh, alone and um, took care of my grandmother when she was sick and so on. This podcast really came out of the last few years, seeing Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and seeing the rise in racism and anti-Semitism, just a general lack of empathy and kindness towards one another. But when you think about World War II, especially under the Third Reich, and when you really think about the Holocaust, there is no empathy or kindness. I remember in your class reading the book, Neighbors, and it's you know, neighbors killing their Jewish neighbors or helping or, you know, ratting out if someone was hiding a Jewish family. And as a person, I can't even imagine treating somebody like that, let alone when, you know, two summers ago with George Floyd and he couldn't breathe and people didn't do anything. So as a historian and someone who studied this so deeply where do you think that empathy and kindness went how could people just turn it off well first of all i think that there are not good answers to those questions and the what registers the fact that there's not good questions is the uh, good answers is the fact uh, that all Jewish witnesses are extremely surprised by what is happening and they're unprepared. Not that they had any illusions about their Catholic neighbors in some ways. You know, Easter was always a dangerous time and so on with razzing and stone throwing. But, uh, but, they, but they were quite, quite surprised. Ditto when uh, being deported um, uh, and the assumption was there would be resettlement um, and the trauma of the Holocaust for the survivors is the fact that they were not able to map their experiences in the Holocaust onto anything else. So they were, they were complete, completely unprepared. Uh, and and that, is, that is the definition of trauma. You, you, you don't know where to put it. Um, and you can't integrate it into your past. 
But nonetheless, let me try to answer the question. Um, Poland had always seen itself, because they call the country calls itself the Christ of nations, uh, a martyr nation that had been wiped off the map uh, during the French Revolution and, and didn't reappear until 1918 and had been divided uh, by the great empires, Russia, Austria, Germany. And so the sense, the sense of being Polish was always a sense of being of suffering and of martyrdom. And that links up with Catholicism. So it's a very ethnic religious based sense of national feeling that excludes uh, for all intents and purposes, Jews are not part of us. Uh, the Ukrainian minority is not part of us. Uh, and certainly the German minority is not part of us, but these minorities you know, were more than one third of the nation. Um, and so, from the get-go uh, in 1918, but even before, the, the sense of national feeling was very, very Catholic and very, very ethnic. And, uh, and you see that today, <laughs> frankly, as well, uh, even though the country, or, or because the country is uh, uh, so ethnically cleansed uh, since 1945 for various reasons. In Germany, the, um, the revolution, the divisions that the revolution caused, the shame of the lost world war, uh, the tough economic times, especially during the Great Depression, uh, all of this creates uh, friction. Um, and and pe pe left and right did not trust each other at all. And the, 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 there was a, a very acrimonious, suspicious language. I would blame the right more than the left, but, uh, but even if you read social democratic newspapers, you, you're, you're struck by the aggressive uh, tone. So the, um, I, I just think the Weimar Republic uh, created the economic and, and the political conditions for a lot of uh, suspicion. On the other hand, you still had many, many people who voted for the pro-Republican parties. And it was only at the, in the last five years when that Republican majority was, was even further eroded. But let me reframe the question. In America, you have today a great deal, racism has always been there, but it's become more politically important. Uh, so you, you, that's why you could have Obama voters voting for, uh, uh, voting for Trump in 2016. But in Germany, you, you don't have an equivalent of that racism. Whatever the problems the Germans had, this was their, this was their own intra-ethnic uh, dispute. And the first victims of Hitler are, are Aryans, so to speak, who go socialists and communists who are stuck in the concentration camps. This, the, this is a civil war among, among the soldiers and families who had fought in the First World War on Germany's side. There is no equivalent to the deep mistrust of African-Americans in Germany. And the anti-Semitism is not an equivalent because it's not, it's not really important 
uh, in determining how people vote and, and certainly how they saw the world around them. Um, people became more interested in Jews and anti-Semitism once Hitler comes to power, but I think it's not a huge factor. It's there, but it's not a huge factor. And so the problems facing America uh, may in some ways be more serious because you have a, uh, a real racial divide uh, in the practices of everyday life and in the interpretation of the world that is fundamental to at least one third of the nation. You know, anti-Semitism, I've experienced it in my life, uh, probably more than Mallory has. The thing I don't understand is the Jewish religion is not a religion that wants to impart our beliefs to other people. Um, Jews typically don't try to convert non-Jews to Judaism. They don't typically try to impose their will on other people. Why do you think anti-Semitism exists? Well, I, I, I think that's a very difficult question to answer for me because I don't, I don't get it. Um, now, Mallory said in the class that she had herself heard people in the Chicago area talk about uh, the, the Jews having killed uh, Jesus and so on. Um, and if you're still hearing that in Chicago, you know, in 2005, uh, that's a, that's a deep-seated myth that people might really not be aware of. And behind that is the fact that the New Testament is now the word of God, and it supersedes uh, the Old Testament. Um, and the idea of a Christian Europe, both against heretics, remember the heretics got, got a lot of foul play too, um, against Muslims in the Reconquista of the Holy Land through the Crusades and in Spain in the 15th century, this is an ongoing, um, whether it's conquest or reconquest, division of the world into the saved and into the um, and into the damned, really. And um, and anybody who is not part of this great Christian empire uh, is an enemy. And whether it's heretics, Jews, or Protestants, and the great wars between the Catholics and the Protestants in the uh, 17th century, 16th and 17th century, they did not involve any anti-Jewish activity. So there's, there is a kind of ebb and flow, but I think a lot of it is the, the um, millennial uh, premises of, of Christianity. Now, I can't say this with too much authority. I, I'm, I didn't grow up uh, in a Christian household, not a believer, but, but I think I think that that passion, that that sense of conquest and reconquest, is quite quite central to how uh, Christianity represents itself. But the Jews have gotten a special treatment, uh, particularly in the modern era, and are identified with all the resentments that come out of modern society, whether it's cosmopolitanism, 
urbanism, intellectualism, capitalism, socialism, Bolshevism. Uh, and the, it's such a mutually exclusive contradictory laundry list is really hard to make sense of. And, um, uh, and then the Nazis put in a, a twist that becomes more and more accepted in German society at that time. And that is, it's not about religion at all. Uh, it's about race. And uh, you cannot prosper if you have alien matter uh, floating around. And, uh, and so that's why they went after Jews who'd converted, whether they were Protestant preachers or Catholic nuns, because it wasn't about religion, it was about, it was about race. But you're talking about the religious anti-Semitism, which is with us, and that's what we have. Um, it's, it's very difficult to, to understand uh, the origins. Jews put more, one has seen this statistically, I've, I've seen the studies in Germany, uh, much more emphasis on education uh, than, than hometown people, so to speak. And uh, this goes for rural Catholicism, rural Protestantism, much more emphasis on, on, on this idea of success through education, whether it's going to a professional school or, or to the university or whatever. And that, that creates resentments. But that's, an, that's a necessary part of the explanation, but it's not a sufficient part of the explanation. So I, I stand there still a little bit uh, stunned. And no other group occupies the position in which the Jews have been positioned by anti-Semites. Uh, maybe Muslims a little bit, um, but that's vague and undefined. Um, but prejudice in Europe certainly has, has, uh, has, has centered on anti-Muslim, anti on the Muslims. You talk about in your books a lot um, propaganda, but more so in the 1930s and 40s, people trusted radio more than newspaper because <laughs> yeah. you talk about how you couldn't edit the radio. It was a live stream. Now we have the news, but we have TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, movies, media, people just deciding to post whatever they want. And it's really hard. And we saw this in the last election and throughout the Trump years, um, this concept of fake news. As somebody who has studied this and the power of propaganda, what were your thoughts over the last few years when you kind of saw the questioning of the media and news and this whole new concept of fake news? It's hard for me to answer because um, until I couldn't get into a university building without proof of vaccination, I didn't own a cell phone. And um, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not on Facebook. And these other things that you mentioned, I've never seen them. I don't, you know, I've heard of them, but I, I don't know what, you know, really what they are. Obviously, fake news has been with us for a long time. You just have to look at anti-Semitism and uh, racism. Uh, those are, that's all fake news, right? There's no such thing as these biological uh, categories. And I assume that these media are amplification of minority views. 
and that there's a rational center that is uh, uh, not amplified. Uh, so what you hear is minority, uh, but what, what's really there uh, is, is probably quite different. That's a kind of an optimistic take on it. But we've always been mediated. Newspapers are entertainment first rather than strict news if they really want to sell copies. Um, and that then goes for radio, that goes for TV. And radio was thought to be more direct. You heard the voice. Uh, it was not plainly and obviously edited. Uh, you could hear the sounds of the background, the clapping, the shouting, the singing. And that seemed to be, if you think that radio is direct, that's the sound of the nation uh, coming through uh, the radio. The radio isn't social democratic. The radio isn't Catholic. It isn't Nazi. It's a box. And, and so it sounds like the uh, authentic voice of the nation. And it may well be that the anger and uh, resentments have a visceral, immediate, almost authentic aspect to them, which privileges fake news for those who are disposed to it. Um, so that the anger would proceed in my, in this hypothesis, the anger would precede the, um, uh, the search for confirmation. And maybe this, all this messaging is, uh, uh, is, is the, authentic, the authenticity that we give to anger and resentment. And then we have been lied to. We were lied to with uh, many aspects of the Great Recession in 2008 in the run-up to that, and then we were lied to in the Iraq War, which cost trillions of dollars. So there has been a, a growing mistrust of, of public institutions. Moreover, it's very plain that uh, the political scientists have done studies of this, even on, in local government, uh, the majority does not rule. Um, what the majority wants in terms of rules and regulations is not, in fact, what legislatures from the local state to the national level end up uh, delivering. Uh, and, and there's a sense that money runs the whole uh, system. And uh, that's uh, not necessarily a misplaced view. And the test for that is not just following the money, but it's, it's in fact, looking at how um, legislation and the study that I'm thinking about is about it is about towns, just small towns that doesn't doesn't reflect the majority, and people are are aware of that. And then they blame the people above, but they might also blame peer groups. You know, the liberals, uh, the constituencies that the liberals need, which are the the African Americans, the Latinos, uh, and the gays. Uh, and so it's the, the, the friction isn't just uh, top down, um, but it's also uh, uh, group versus group. I don't think it's neighbor versus neighbor so much, uh, but, it, but, it's, but it's the imaginary group out there. Day-to-day um, -day racism probably, well, I can't speak for the South, but I mean, my sense is that in, if you're in a town uh, and there are different kinds of people, things sort themselves out a little bit better than how people project. Um, <coughs> and that is very interesting with empathy. I mean, there's a whole economy of empathy with the uh, George Floyd death, murder, because huge amounts of the country were very emotionally 
touched by what happened in May. And by the time we get to July, oh, then it's Black Lives Matter. And uh, you know, then, then it goes into much more conventional ways. Maybe people didn't know what to do with uh, their, their uh, empathy uh, in May, but then it returned to these conventional uh, byways. But that's a projection more than it is, you know, an experience. Everybody can imagine a everyone's, you know, experienced police, and this is not an unimaginable event. Mallory brought up media, and I remember as a uh, youngster, early teenager, watching the Vietnam War on TV, and I remember being horrified at what I saw. And going back to the Holocaust, do you think if media was covering it the way they covered the Vietnam War, I'm not even going to get into the Iran-Iraq wars, uh, that it would have changed the, the outcome? Well, it's hard, it's hard to imagine that uh, scenario. But if there was if there, if it was a if one was able to take pictures somehow, and uh, German audiences had a uh, had a <clears throat> access to them. Sure, sure, you would have had more. Um, oh, people would have been horrified, but it might also have slipped into. Um, ideas of, uh, I mean, there were a lot of atrocities that were publicized at the time, um, particularly the violence uh, of Bolsheviks against prisoners right after the Germans invaded uh, Russia. I mean, those things are, are true. They hail beside German atrocities, uh, but those were very much, atrocities is always what the other person can do to you. And so I, I I, I wonder how this all would be interpreted. But that said, Germans did not vote for the Holocaust and Germans would not have voted for the Holocaust. And there's evidence that people objected to um, the final stages of anti-Jewish violence. Not everybody, and that's scary enough, but, but still sizable groups, that doesn't mean you become an anti-Nazi, not at all. Um, but that part of the program uh, was 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 unnecessary. I also remember in your class you showing pictures that went along with a letter. So if you were a soldier, people were sending pictures to their you know girlfriend or wife or something, and it would show like dead people in the background, like photos. So I I think there was photographic evidence. It's not like nobody I, knew they what was it. every. Yeah. every Every photograph we have of the Holocaust it was is, like going to be is, is a snap by a German behind a camera. All of them, almost all of them, including the one from the Warsaw Ghetto with the little boy with his hands up. That, that, it, that was for a photo album that was delivered to him. The civilian murders in Poland and especially in the Soviet Union were interpreted as the enemy. That's the enemy, whether it's in uniform or not. And then, and then you saw, and that's in the war. Um, the de deportation of your neighbors in Germany probably elicited more sympathy because they were they they were from your town, 
And, the, and for a while, the Nazis made distinctions between Eastern and Western Jews. But the, yeah, the, the visual propaganda was made by ordinary soldiers. And you just have to imagine the cycle because there's not a, uh, there's not a Walgreens uh, in Russia where you can develop your film. The film has to be sent back home to your wife who is going to develop it. But she needs to be told what to send back to you. So A1, B1, you know, A1, A2, A3, A4 on the film, that has to be discussed by letter. So she can develop, the wife can develop, possibly enlarge and make copies of uh, the photographs because then they were traded, people traded. So yeah, you have this huge circle of, of complicity. Now, most photographs are not Holocaust photographs, but every Holocaust photograph was in fact taken by a German soldier, one sort or the other. Going back to your father's question, everybody knew that the World War I propaganda was over the top, right? Everybody knew that the Allies had really peddled some terrible stuff with saying that the Germans had cut off hands and raped nuns and all of that. And so some of that's true actually, but, uh, but, but the smart opinion in the late 1930s was that was all over the top and the Allies had played a fundamental role in this terrible propaganda. And therefore they disbelieved the evidence coming out in 1939, 40, 41, as just more of all of that. So there are a lot of reasons, you know, there's a lot of visuals, but, they, but, it's, but they, it's, it's captured in different kinds of narratives and different kinds of um, patterns of interpretation. But for example, but I think Germans had some real problems. First of all, they, they, they explained the bombings, which, really become serious after the spring of 42, as <clears throat> the Jews getting back at them in revenge or God getting back at the Germans in revenge for what the Nazis had done to the Jews. Now, that rests on an anti-Semitic trope of the super Jew in London uh, <laughs> dictating uh, Royal Air Force policy. But nonetheless, there is a link uh, between what the Nazis had done first and what is now happening to the Germans. And that is in, in a spirit of critique. Secondly, we don't, uh, there's not, not too much evidence of this, but I've asked so many historians, they all agree. I think there was an outpouring of appeals for this and that Jew in the fall of 1941. And you see signs of that. Two years later, Himmler gives a speech to his, his, his officers and he talks about, oh yeah, everybody has their A1 Jew. And he's, he's very angry about that. They, they, don't, they don't really take seriously the party's line on this because they always want to make an exception, make an exception. And do you know what Theresienstadt is? That is the result of the public relations problem that the Nazis had in the fall of 1941 because everybody had an exception. 
And so then they made this big ruse. This was a uh, terminal, terminal ghetto. People would not be taken out from there. And it would be an old age home and it would be different. Uh, because the Nazis felt that they that's what they had to do. They had a real public relations problem. So that that also suggests that there, there's some there's real dismay about what's going on. But you know, Jews are minuscule proportion of the population. So once you get outside of Berlin or outside of Frankfurt or so on, this is not the thing that most people are thinking about at all. Um, they want to win the war, they want the war to end. They don't want to get bombed. Um, all of that is on a smaller scale than the Holocaust, obviously, but that's that's what people were living in their particular precincts. You know, it seems to me that it's amazing that millions of Jews were slaughtered and yet they still believe in their God, the God of compassion, the God that watches over them. And I know for me growing up, uh, I had always said to my parents, how can there be a God if God let that happen? Right. This is uh, Job, the Lamentations, goes very far in explaining to people in the 20th century what's happening to them. And then you can watch how that sense of precedence begins to break down and and people are are in despair and so that reposes the question <clears throat> that job asks and how that's now uh sorted out i think is that you can have a uh a compassionate god or you can or God is understandable, or God is all-powerful, but you can't have all three. And so modern theology, both Christian and Jewish, has talked about a wounded God, a half-blinded God, uh, who can't intervene. Um, however, uh, it, the estimate is that one-third of Orthodox Jews lost their faith, that based on interviews in Israel uh, after 1947. So you're saying now or then? Well, immediately after the war, when these surveys were taken, or in the 1950s, it seems as though about a third of the survivors had lost their faith. That, that that's actually means the two-thirds did not. And these are the survivors. Survivors miss one important set of experiences in the Holocaust. That, that is to say, they were never lined up to go into the guest chamber. They were always on labor detail. No, but they were certainly aware of what was going on. They were aware of what was going on, yes. Well, that's also an interesting question. Um, a lot uh, people people fought the knowledge that was accessible to them. Peter, when I was a student in your class, um, I came into it feeling like I had a fair amount of knowledge about the Holocaust as um, I'm a grandchild of two Holocaust survivors. But recent studies have really shown that younger generations just don't know about it. I think 
I found a fact that said fewer than half Americans, about 43%, knew that Hitler became chancellor of Germany through a democratic process. And only about 45% actually know that in total, total, about 12 million people died, including the 6 million Jews. As a professor teaching future generations, what are have you seen that students are not as knowledgeable coming into your class? Obviously leaving, they will have learned a ton, but when they first start, do you see that little decline in knowledge? Well, you know, in Western Civ, which is our basic introductory course, I teach the Holocaust. Uh, so I don't assume that they know about it, though I refer to it you know, in my first lecture that we're, that this is where we're headed. I, but I, I'm mistrustful of those statistics. I mean, there's a lot of ignorance about even American presidents and um, uh, things that seem right in front of your face. This is now 85 years ago. Um, That's what actually like blows my mind is that it was not that long ago. No, and for some uh, so, reason, people yeah. think about the Holocaust like it was hundreds of years ago when I saw um, on MLK Day, there was a post that said that MLK and Anne Frank were born in the same year. And if they correct. were still alive, they would have been around 93. That is correct. And Anne would have turned 93 in April. And it's shocking to think that Martin Luther King was assassinated at the age of 39. And he too could very well be with us uh, right now. And yes, they were both born in 1929. And so it's, it is not that far, far away. And uh, my, my father himself fought in the Wehrmacht and he died in 2018. Uh, he he deserted, but but nonetheless, I mean, his age group was uh, was called up in January '45, uh, so so it isn't so far away. Um, another another uh, I don't know how do you take American be, Americans being scandalized uh, with the uh, separation of children at the border in 2017? Um, doesn't that suggest that there's some? Uh, effect of the Holocaust. Um, we interpret other atrocities in faraway places through the Holocaust, uh, whether it's in um, uh, Rwanda or, or elsewhere. And these are now strung together as, as genocide, which is a field of study. How do you explain the acceptance in Germany of uh, nearly 1 million people in 2015? Uh, one million is a lot of people. And um, that, that is because of the Holocaust. And German youth are not just taught about the Holocaust in school. I mean, it's part of the fabric of everyday life, including the impatience with always bumping into it, obviously. Yeah. An 18-year-old wants to go to a beach in Italy and not be considered a German. They want to be considered an 18-year-old boy or an 18-year-old girl. So, of course, they're impatient. But nonetheless, it's all part of the civic culture of Germany in a way simply that slavery and, and Jim Crow and so on are not. Talking about Jim Crow, that was also not so long ago. <laughs> and we just have to look at our prisons. 
We have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the prison population in the country. Um, we don't see that. There's lots of things we do not see that our grandchildren will say, whoa, why didn't you see that? So I, I'm, I'm not sure just how salient all that, that is, but I think if I was the director of the Holocaust Museum, knowing that I've had tens of millions of visitors since the opening 26, 27 years ago, 29 years ago now, I, I would, I think I would be very, very stunned and saddened by American public opinion in the Trump era. Well, why is it that in the United States, Holocaust education is not a federal mandate? Like in Germany, everyone learns it. In the United States, for some reason, we have left it up to the states to teach it. And it seems like from people I've spoken to outside of the bubble of the North Shore of Chicago, where I grew up, which I would say is about 80% Jewish, when they hear about the Holocaust, they go, Anne Frank, and that's it. There's not a lot of more depth. Maybe they might say Schindler's List, like if they had seen the movie, but even that, maybe not. But it seems like the education, people read Anne Frank, but there's not, it's not taught. It's not a mandate to teach this history. And I get that it did not occur in the United States versus like it did in Germany, but it's still like a human rights issue. Like it's still racism, anti-Semitism. It's still a part of history that kind of weaves into the human like fabric. Those lessons are not dependent on the Holocaust. You can learn them elsewhere. And if what's important is those lessons, uh, group behavior, how groups interact, uh, how they meet violence onto each other, there's, there's, there's contemporary, more contemporary examples. Um, nonetheless, the Holocaust is, has a particularity. Um, the Germans, you know what the uh, slogan in 1947 was that Koch advertised in Germany? They said, Koch is back. Koch was back because it was there until 1941. From 1929 to 1941. These people drank Coke. The best seller uh, on the day that the Germans invaded Poland was Gone with the Wind. Uh, they saw movies. They went camping and canoeing, right? That this is what is so shocking is that the, the, the Germans are us in so many ways. But I'm not so sure whether is the grass glass half full or half empty when they know about Anne Frank and Schindler's List? You're saying half empty, maybe it's half full. I've just, I re remember hearing someone say, oh, I read Anne Frank, like it didn't seem that bad. And I was just like, really? Oh, of course not. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just- the diary ends. Yes, at the, <laughs> it ends, but you don't really, you know, there might be like an afterwards about like, you know, she died in the camp and this and her father is the only one that survived and all this other aspects. But when you start to read other literature and now even, you know, with Moss being banned, like uh, that book and I think it's Tennessee that book got banned. It's, are we limiting 
the work out there that teaches and just pushing it towards one. Okay, so the reason for some of these bands is that it makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, Isn't that what growth is? Exactly. And this feeling of avoiding discomfort is not comes from below and comes from above. We self-censor ourselves in what we see. And we, we go close, but then don't always approach uh, the dark heart of the matter. And then of course, these school boards and so on are concerned about uh, not making people uncomfortable. Germans are uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's why they're sometimes frustrated. They just wanna be normal, um, but they can't be. And, um, uh, but, but where really this discomfort were, has an effect is of course teaching about uh, race and not about the Holocaust. In fact, you could argue that if you taught the Holocaust, you don't have to teach race. And it's it, in a way it absorbs it absorbs uh, something completely different, which is uh, the engagement with race in the United States. I mean, it's it's the Holocaust. Who's who? It's easy to be against the Holocaust, especially in the United States. So so I, I think I think just to look at is it taught? Is it not taught? Um, what do people know? What they don't know? I'm I'm not so sure that. Well, what's being indicated there? Um, the mandate in Illinois uh, was expanded uh, so that it is Holocaust and genocides. And it's not or, it's and. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I agree with that. It seems to me that the recent rise in anti-Semitism in the United States uh, seems to be fueled from the right-wing white supremacist more than mainstream America. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. Why do you think that is? When realistically, the Jews have really never done anything to that <laughs> segment of America to justify their hatred. I'll answer it this way. Um, if you feel aggrieved and put on, you can say, well, we're in a post-industrial economy and uh, job base has changed and I have to re-educate myself. And this is, this is part of the uh, changes and transformations in the world. Or you can say, this is the result of criminal behavior. Uh, my lot here, and it and criminal behavior means that you can find means to um, to or you can take remedial action. That's what I think is behind the slogan "Make America Great Again." Uh, that there's that there's conspiratorial criminal activity that that if you take remedial action, then everything will be back wholesome. So it means that you have a picture of virtue and wholesomeness that's been endangered, but then you can use um, 
uh, quick, short, violent means uh, to make everything good again. And so in a way, the picture of America, the virtuous uh, is premised on the ability to use this violence. And I think that perhaps uh, targeting Jews is a way to, uh, uh, to suggest here's conspiratorial criminal activity. And if only they were absent instead of present, then everything would be okay. And that upholds then your vision, your virtuous vision of yourself and of your community and your, and your country. Uh, so it relies on a small and somehow different entity, uh, whether it's the criminal or the Jew or the this or the that, that, uh, that, that, that is the problem. And it makes it possible for you not to really examine yourself and the social economic changes around you. Just thinking off the top of my head. But your question remains, why, why the Jew? Uh, because I'm, I'm creating an explanation for a scapegoat. But why is the Jew always the scapegoat? And I guess it goes back to these old Christian, um, these old Christian ideas. Also that the Jews are in it for themselves and then are thus, you know, this whole thing of, you know, what's the allegiance to America? What's the allegiance to Israel thing, right? Um, is just, is just a uh, new edition of this whole idea that Jews are, are, are loyal to themselves and not to their country. What are um, two or three facts or points about either the Third Reich or the Holocaust you wish people knew? I, I think that when we explain human behavior, we tend to take explanations that see the situation that people are in. And we interpret it from that. So people are making, are responding to a situation that has just come about. And so you have these economic emergencies, you have the lost war, you have the revolution, and that all then <clears throat> sort of upsets people. And the, the more centrist position that they had uh, they, they get pulled into extremes because of that. Uh, but were it not for these extreme situ emergency situations, people wouldn't be pulled up from the extremes. And we generally, that's generally how we interpret human behavior, short term. You just ask an undergraduate, they're all vulgar Marxists. People are acting in their short term economic interest. There's no such thing as belief or faith or God or any or, or larger ideological constructs. And so I think well, you have to look at desire. Why did people vote for them? Not just because they wanted to, because <laughs> they liked them. Um, that doesn't explain everything or everybody, but desire, true love, is part of the explanation too. And so to say they're brainwashed, to talk about propaganda. These are asking the wrong questions in my mind. There's much more desire. And then you can explain a lot based on that desire. You can explain away a lot you don't wanna see. And of course there's some things that shouldn't happen. No one's 100% Nazi. 
they're 80%, they're 70%, they're 65%. Uh, but, but they're thinking about all of this. They're thinking about race, they're thinking about community, they're thinking about responsibility. Um, and they come up with different varieties of, of quest answers, but um, desire is, is much more important, I would say, than one thinks. Is desire a central feature in explaining the Holocaust? Well, it's there for sure, but I would, I would go back to empathy. I think people put them, if you can put somebody else into a group that doesn't concern you, then it's much easier to, uh, to um, look away. And I've been reading a lot of newspapers for my new project and uh, the, the, the destruction of the Czech village in late June, 1944, Lidice for Heydrich's assassination, occupies much more uh, width, bread, what do you call that, uh, broadcast width in newspapers and so on than <clears throat> anything happening to the Jews. Um, <coughs> uh, even when much more is known in 1943, it just doesn't, just doesn't figure the assassination of French hostages by the Germans, much more bandwidth uh, than, than other things. So the Jews are just in an outgroup, but that doesn't explain murdering them. And in Ordinary Men, Christopher Browning says, you know, given the situation, given what I've been told, given the, well, mostly the pressures of conformity in the small group, which I agree with, I think that's a huge factor, and that's situational and not desire. Uh, where would I, what would I do? He said, I can't say. I find that a stunning response, um, but it's in line with his argument about small group conformity. But I personally don't think I would shoot children. I will tell you, I have told so many people about that book when they have asked me about the Holocaust or how could it happen um, for our listeners, I, I'll post that book as well as um, all of um, Peter's books on our Instagram. So if people want to continue reading or learn a little bit more, but I would say reading Ordinary Men in your class was a very eye-opening experience. Now, I, I would argue that ideology occupies a two, subor two secondary, two subordinate a role in that book. Uh, but he's right. I mean, it is a fantastic test case. He's got middle-aged men from a, from a big city that had previously voted socialist and communist. And um, these are the most unlikely killers, and, that, and they do it anyway. So I think that's highly instructive. But ideology is also playing a role in the uh, su relatively successful association of um, communism and uh, Jews. And then what Hitler, and here I think this is sort of, I don't say propaganda, but this was a lesson that the Germans came to learn, which is a premise of Nazism. And that is that the, in 1918, with the revolution and the lost war and Versailles, Germany was almost extinguished. People didn't think that in 1918. But that's what they came to believe in the 1930s. It's a, it's a false recovered memory. From that flows the preemptive action of Germans against their enemies, lest their enemies do 
successfully to the Germans what they had tried in 1918. And in fact, well, if we don't do this to them, they will do it to us. That goes far. How far? I don't know. Uh, but this false recovered memory of 1918 goes very far. That, that we, we are the victims. Can you, the interesting question, Mallory and Ross, can you be a perpetrator in the end, day after day, without thinking that you're the victim? No. And even in Ordinary Men, they were telling, if you don't kill these children, right. they might kill your children. And as a parent... They talk about children all the time. This all is a fascinating... Children, grandchildren. That's why we're killing children and grandchildren. To protect because yours. Otherwise, yeah, exactly. Otherwise, they'll grow up and get our grandchildren. Isn't that really that in fear, the basis of all racism? What this is, is a very concrete, identifiable myth. Because it's based on people's experience. They, they lived through 1918. They know all about 1918. Uh, it's not vague. It's not abstract. Um, and and Hitler had lifted Germany up in, in very many obvious ways. And all that would be endangered. But again, it's necessary, but not a sufficient explanation. Um, and maybe you do get brutalized. That's another part of Browning's argument. And then, of course, the the first killing action is shocking. And there's this kind of a quiet, some people are, are, are sort of sick, um, have to go to alcohol, uh, but then the, the actions change. The, they become a little bit more distanced. You know, it's not one-to-one, -one, killing one-to-one. -one. Um, and then you also get brutalized. And these are very, very conventional explanations, but the horror of the Holocaust doesn't, uh, preclude very conventional explanations. But in the whole thing, whether we're talking about 33 or we're talking about 42, don't eliminate desire. I think it's less relevant for 42 than for 33, but um, I, I think we have to take people seriously. Peter, thank you so much. For our listeners, if you're a current student at the University of Illinois, I would tell you to go and sign up for his class, or if you're thinking about attending the university, um, I took uh, several classes from you over my four years at Illinois. But Peter, we end every podcast with the same three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? Very simple. Do unto others as you would have uh, them do unto you. The second question is, if you could relive any one day of your life, which day would you choose? I thought about that. I would like a day like that to relive. <laughs> uh, it's the lucky person who can answer that question, I think. Um, because uh, it's based on true love, but it also has to be based on its realization so that that day doesn't get lost in tomorrow's but if i had to choose a day it would be when i met my wife <laughs> uh 
in March 2010. Um, uh, that, that, that feeling, oh my God, <laughs> of uh, being in love, that's really something I never thought I'd feel uh, again. Um, and that's really, you're walking in the sky. <laughs> So that, yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty amazing, a pretty amazing thing. And do then most questions, do most answers go in that direction? I would say <laughs> kind of all over the place. Um, I've had two people talk about wanting to relive their wedding days just because they don't remember it or they didn't <laughs> want, like Nick Roach didn't even take a picture because they got married at a courthouse and then had like a big thing. Some people will say when their children were born, others will just say, um, but it's know, family, a it's family, family or, you know, I think those guests who I've had who don't have kids and aren't married, it's usually like a career accomplishment or something along those lines, or, um, like the last day they were with a loved one before they passed away, those kind of yeah, but it was it's really extraordinary. You live, you know, you're happy, you do all sorts of fun things and this and that, go dancing and so on. But then this feeling, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Very different. And then the final question, which is my favorite question, is if you had a theme song that played every single time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Well, I, I it's an embarrassing question, but I'll uh, because I don't think something like that should happen. But um, I'll take the premise of the question. This would be Curtis Mayfield's uh, Move On Up. Love it. So that song will be added to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify playlist where all our guest theme songs are. So listeners can listen to your theme song as well as others. Um, Peter, thank you so much. I so appreciate you coming on. You have oh, my pleasure open door to come back. I feel like this conversation could have gone a thousand one ways. You're so knowledgeable and I appreciate you asking and answering all our questions. Well, these conversations are very productive. So I've very much enjoyed seeing you again and meeting your father. So you guys take care. Peter, it was a pleasure meeting you and I enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs>